welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Friend, it is so surreal to be chatting with you today about my fertility story. It has been six years of having conversations in my head, thinking about what I would say or share with you when the time came. And it feels like it's been the longest time as I sat down to gather my notes today and try to remember and put myself back where I was six years ago. And now all of a sudden, it also suddenly feels like it's happening so fast. We will find out in literally 72 hours from when I'm recording this if our first embryo worked and we're pregnant. And I've been quite calm during what is called in IVF world the two-week wait, which is actually only a nine-day wait. So it's really a week wait, um, which was nice to realize because we were prepped for the full two-week wait. Um, And maybe I'll share more on Instagram in real time why I think I'm so calm. I was writing about it in my Elegant Excellence journal this morning, really reflecting on I would love to have this piece in so many other areas of my life. So why do I think that I am finding it in this one when it you know, would be incredibly intense? But at the moment, I am feeling a lot of peace. And I'm also kind of um, feeling like I'm in my new mom era in that Freddie Cappuccino, our little cat, has been sleeping with us since we got back a week ago from telling our families in person. And I love that he's sleeping with us because he was kind of out of a habit for a little while, but he is sleeping so close to me. He usually sleeps at the foot of our bed. He is like right up in my legs that I keep feeling him when I go to roll over and it's waking me up. And I record these podcast episodes also on video with the idea that we might post them on YouTube one day. So normally before I record a podcast, I do my hair, my makeup, Today I was like, I'm just too tired. I'm just too tired. Like bare face, hair back in a pony. We're good. Like if this is the era that we're moving into, I barely do my hair and makeup as is when I'm not filming, but maybe it's not even going to happen while filming because I'm just going to be too tired or have other things that are the priority for the moment. So today I'm going to share my story. And it really is my story. I am not the expert on IVF or any element of this. This is just my story. And a real theme as you listen is how much our stories are shaped by others' stories. Our childhood, something our parents said, our friends, our family, the experiences we have, the people that are close to us have, a a TV show or something memorable that got stuck in our head at some point. So In so many areas of life, you may not fear or feel something because it's just not your story. It hasn't been your lived experience. You haven't seen that element, angle, or idea up close in your life or lived out in the people closest to you. And I feel like I might have mentioned this in another episode recently that in the garden party with joining What Makes Women Feel Beautiful, one of our members shared that her dad left her mom when her mom was 50, for a much younger woman. And as she is now turning 50, so much of that indoctrination is coming back up. That 50 is old, it's less attractive, and she's working to rewire that. And hearing her story, I instantly went, wow, 
That makes so much sense. That is not my story. That's not my association with 50. That's not how I believe I will feel at 50. But I can hear her experience and honor that that has absolutely shaped her thoughts, feelings, fears, and actions. And I don't think this is even exclusively a conversation about a fertility journey. It's also about following a decades-long path sort of back and forwards as to how and why we make the choices that we do in adulthood and different ones than someone else might make because of our lived experience. And it's also about providence, timing, the magic and fragility of life. And as always, I share my story to either make you feel seen, supported, and helped in yours or more compassionate, understanding, helpful to the people in your life or culture at large. And today that might be around fertility or even just reflecting on what experiences in your life have led you to choose, fear, or have faith in different choices. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, I posted on Instagram for you to submit any questions, so I will be referencing those throughout. And the first one, chronologically, is from Amber, who said, have you always known you wanted children? I'm now 37 years old, and I worry it's too late. I'm wishing I educated myself more on egg freezing when I was younger, but I wasn't really sure I wanted children until recently. P.S. Thank you for sharing your story. And by the way, so many of you have said, thank you for sharing your story. And I want to thank you for saying that because... I think it is something so personal, and because my heart is always to help you in your story, sometimes when I'm sharing mine, I hesitate a little bit because I'm like, this isn't the Hillary show. Everybody doesn't want to know everything about me, but it's such a reminder. No, actually, I have been so deeply, dearly helped over the years by the stories of other people. I have listened to pretty much every podcast out there by someone who went through surrogacy and searched the hashtags and followed people you know, on Instagram you know, covertly not actually following them so no one would see that I was following the fertility count, whatever. So I am so grateful to the other people that have shared their stories. And it's just been such a reminder that that's what I'm doing. I'm giving back to the community that has been so supportive to me. So Amber, it is not too late. It is not too late, or at least you have zero proof of that right now. That we can't associate our age with saying that we know that. I want to refer you to Dr. Lucky Seacon who is my doctor now, as well as a friend and a neighbor here in Brooklyn. I will put her link in the description of this episode, but she is an incredible resource as a uh, fertility doctor to better understand what your options are. Um, But I'll also share in a little bit why it wasn't on your radar, however many years ago, why We haven't had that much education on egg freezing, but if you are hearing this and you are interested in it, I just want to say again, I can't speak to your health, your age, whatever, but we don't have any proof. Until you get looked at, you don't know whether in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, um, what your story is. And so I also just want to be an advocate for not immediately thinking it's too late and saying, well, I actually don't know that. Let me explore that before I know. Have I always known I wanted children? I have not. And I am going to link two episodes in the description as well um, from about two years ago that I did really vulnerably with a lot of crying, talking about how much I was on the fence about this topic. And it resonated so 
deeply with so many of you. It's probably the the second one. The first one, I was kind of tiptoeing around it. And then I sort of heard the response and I saw what some other people had shared. And I was like, you know, I think I need to be even more honest. So the second one, I am very honest. And I think I realized there's just not enough discourse and conversation around that. And so many women right now are feeling torn and on the fence, or maybe again, people in your life are feeling torn and on the fence and it allowed you to really better empathize um, with where we're at. So I'm actually going to do a separate episode on how we made that decision or just how to make big decisions in life because I really worked for years to get to the answer on this one. And so I feel like I have some some nuggets, some steps, some intentions and actions that I did that could help you. But I didn't know basically for all of my 20s and 30s, did I want kids? Did I not want kids? Did I want kids? Did I not want kids? And that felt so stressful to me in dating because I felt like I should know. Like I should know before I meet a guy and then let him sway me. It feels like it should be an early conversation in dating that you have a confident answer to. And it was very stressful to me that I didn't have the answer. What I would say to anyone else who feels that is it's fine that you don't know. Your gut will tell you at the right time. So I, at one point, um, fell really hard for a guy that I was dating who uh, is an educator. He works in like private schools and in higher education. And he, his dream would be to be a stay-at-home dad and homeschool his kids. And I was like, yeah. I, I am in love with this guy. We are absolutely having kids. Like there's no way that I would take that away from him. And there's no way that I would not be with him just over that fact. So realizing that I was like, oh, I am definitely open to kids. Then the guy that I dated right before Jeremy was divorced with three kids. And I had total peace about having no more kids. I was like, yeah, if this is the guy, I, I would have no attachment to feeling like I needed to have my own kids. I also was aware if somebody wanted a really big family, they were not the guy for me. My husband is one of eight kids. And on our first half date where we like sat next to each other at a brunch with a bunch of friends before we'd actually been out like one-on-one, but we just talked to each other the whole time and everyone was like, what's going on with those two? Um, I was like, so does coming from a big family make you want a big family? Because I was like, if he says yes, I'm, I'm not even interested in this guy. Like we would not be going on a date I knew five kids, eight kids, not for me. And he was like, I kind of think the opposite because I have multiple siblings that have been married for quite a while and no one has kids. So I think it like scarred all of us from having um, kids. I never had the experience of dating someone I was really excited about who said they did not want kids. So I don't know if I had met someone that I was crazy about who was like, I really don't think I do. Here's my vision for my life without them. Maybe I would have been equally open to that, or maybe I would have realized that I actually did really want them. I never had to find that out. And I ended up with someone who was very like, yeah, I could go either way. I think we could have a great life without kids. I think we'd have a great life with kids. I think we got to have a great life adopting. I think we could have a great life with biological kids. Like Jeremy's just... He's got a wonderful personality in terms of being like very open to all of the things. Uh, Anne asked, as someone who is three to six years out from wanting children and doesn't have a partner yet, I've been thinking a lot lately about this process, egg freezing in particular. And if I do decide to have kids and when that time comes, if it will be too late for me, hence planning now. I say this as someone who is very optimistic and adapts, shifts, takes action and change, but I fear the what if is, but the fear and what if is still there. 
Being in my 30s makes it more top of mind. What was the process or circumstances that led to the decision to do egg freezing? So I am so grateful to Amber and Anne and that so many of you clarified that you are single right now because so was I when I first made this decision. I feel like, I guess I'm getting emotional because I just like, I think I just feel really grateful. You know, I've talked a lot about how I was single for so long and I very much wanted a partner and I very much wanted to be married. And I'm feeling very grateful in this moment that if you are single, I can say to you, I made this choice for me when I was single and I, and I wasn't waiting for, for someone else. And I wasn't not moving forward because I didn't have that other person initially. So I was so blessed that the angel of my story was my financial planner, Sophia. (laughs) I had no friends that were doing this at the time. This was fall 2016. Um, I had one friend, to to clarify, that uh, was doing egg freezing. She had lost her mother to breast cancer when she was young, and she had tested positive for the BRCA gene, which is a breast cancer gene. So that felt very, like a very different scenario, that there was really a medical reason why she was moving forward. Insurance would cover this. So I wasn't really relating to her experience because, again, our childhood, our family medical history was so different. Other than that, I didn't know anyone who was doing this. No one was talking about this. No one I was following on social media. It just was not a conversation. And my financial planner knew that I was unsure whether or not I wanted kids. So was she. And uh, she said, I had some clients that just did this and loved it. They felt like it really took the time clock off. And so I am thinking about doing it for myself. And I feel like you really might want to do it as well. And I will say, It's not 100% true that you fully take the time clock off because if you make eggs, make embryos, like are you going to, if you make the eggs now, are you going to be carrying the child at 50 and, you know, becoming a first-time mom? Maybe, maybe not. So it doesn't necessarily mean there is absolutely no clock left in life. We still all humans have this range of life, Um, but it does buy you time and peace of mind or at least knowledge and information. So I was so grateful that because this person knew my finances, they knew technically I could afford to do a round of this and because they knew my future plans, because that's something you talk about with a financial planner, um, and I'm just so grateful that I had a female financial planner because I don't know if that would have happened if I had a male financial planner. So this was, I believe that conversation was in October, 2016 which is coincidentally the same month that I met Jeremy, but I was newly dating that person with three kids. um, And as I said, would have been fine not having any more, but I mean, I think I'd been on like, you know, one date with that guy or something. So I wasn't just like, oh, this is the guy, never mind. So it was in my mind, but wasn't attached or associated with anyone. So I had that idea. It was um, in the fall that I wanted to do it. It was finally eight months later in summer 2017 when I actually went in for my first appointment. So thinking about it, researching the place, being busy with work, finally getting around to the appointment. So Jeremy and I had been dating for six months. And I've been very grateful in this experience to the Kardashians (laughs) because there have been a lot of different times, again, not a lot of people were talking about this. And because Khloe Kardashian had gone in to see how many follicles she had to look into potentially egg freezing, is the only way I knew what to expect. 
And it's another reason why I'm passionate about sharing my story because truly hearing or seeing what someone else did is how you know what you don't know. And so because of that, she'd had the experience of going in and her follicle count was really low. Now, in her case, she was on birth control. She then went off birth control, went back later, had a much higher follicle count. But I'd watched another woman go through being told, you don't have a lot of follicles. You know, this this could already be late in the process for you. And so because of that, I I was so relieved when I... I, to go to this appointment and be like, okay, I know where I'm at. And they basically said ballpark, like you can do you'll with, with the follicles you'll have, you'll pretty much do one round of IVF. Uh, you'll likely end up with three embryos. That's like a 95% chance of a Lyme birth. And I was like, okay, yeah, that feels good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel really positive about this. Like this, this feels good. And I remember specifically going right after that to dinner with Jeremy. Like we've been dating about six months. And I said, hey, I just came from this fertility appointment and it was kind of emotional because I might've gotten bad news, but I feel really good about the news. Um, and I was thinking about this before I met you. You know, this is not related to you, but I'm gonna go ahead and move forward with this. So it really at that point wasn't about him. I was pretty positive that we were getting married already. I mean, we were pretty ride or die from um, day one, but I didn't want to have any regret in delaying. And I also knew that I didn't want kids anytime soon. So it wasn't like I was thinking, well, if this is the one, maybe we'll be married in a year and then we'll move right on to having kids. So those two things kind of weren't associated in my mind that much. But then we, I don't know, life is just busy. I was okay with the appointment, right? I was like, oh, this is going to be good. So it just was like one of many things on the to-do list that doesn't really have a deadline. As an entrepreneur, I'm incredibly busy. There's always more things, I think, on all of our to-do lists than we can get around to, right? So you have those things that just keep getting pushed off. And you're like, I could do that next month. I could do that next month. By the end of the year, we'd set a wedding date. Then we got engaged. Yes, we did that kind of backwards, but um, then we were wedding planning. I'd brought on business partners. So there was just a lot going on. So it was actually a year before I got around to actually doing it. And it was summer 2018. And I want to say to you, or perhaps for you to pass on to someone in your life, to not wait. If you were thinking about doing this, to not wait. It does not have to be at the perfect time. You do not have to have these perfect low stress two weeks, et cetera. Do not make a big deal out of it. If you're going to do it, do it. Do it next month. Don't wait another six months, 12 months. And I don't want to say that to come from a place of fear for or instill fear in anyone. But when I went back, I had substantially less follicles 12 months later. And I want to kind of pause to say, I'm going to share a lot of things in my story and it's up to you, beautiful friend, to choose not to be fearful about them if they may or may not speak to you, to not take them as fact for your story, which I understand is easier said than done, but there is a lot in my story that is also not the case for everyone. So you just have no idea. This is so personal, so unique. So I just encourage you as your friend to not panic, 
but just be like, you know what? That might be the kick in the pants that I needed to just kind of do the thing. So if it's been on my radar, let me just stop putting it off, stop making it seem like I've got to have the perfect time to do it. Let me just do it. I don't think there's any way you're going to regret doing it sooner if it's something that you think you're going to do anyways, is kind of my point. So somewhere along the way between that first appointment, summer 2017, and actually doing it in 2018, we learned that you don't really know what you have with eggs because eggs is only one part of the process. So after the eggs, then you see if they, when you pair them with the sperm, if they mature into embryos. And so because it wasn't, it still left a lot of questions open. And again, we were moving forward in our relationship. I think Jeremy was the one that was like, why would we not do embryos? That just makes a lot more sense. So we were engaged by the time we did our first round and it was right before our elopement. And we were thinking we're doing one round of these. I mean, that's pretty much the you know info that I got last summer. This is just backup insurance. It's just to take the timeline pressure off. It's to take the pressure off of wondering do we need to decide now? If I, if I wait another six months to decide, is it going to be too late? What if I wait another year to decide? Is it going to be too late? That's really what we were like. Let's just take that pressure off that we've kind of got this little backup insurance. And we were still unsure about kids. We weren't talking about it a lot. We'd had enough conversations to know we were both kind of open either way. We both weren't totally sure. But I definitely knew that I wanted to be married for a good handful of years. So back to how much our childhood impacts these stories or just experiences of our friends and family. My parents were married for seven years before they had me. And my mom just always emphasized all throughout my childhood and adolescence and adulthood how grateful she was for that time. And so I really had that story of wanting a substantive amount of time after you were married before having children. Now, by contrast, my in-laws, who have also been together uh, Jeremy's whole life, uh, they got pregnant on their honeymoon. (laughs) So not saying that there is a right or wrong way to do it, but I just had zero desire to have kids right away. So we weren't immediately moving into that. So we never experienced infertility because we never tried to get pregnant. And technically, the definition of infertility is you have tried for X amount of months or something and not been able to get pregnant. So I've never been pregnant or tried to get pregnant. I really was in a unique spot that I'm not aware of anyone else in my story being in. I It was such a blessing to have a partner and many women who go through egg freezing are doing it because they are single and they haven't met their person yet. And I was being proactive. You know, so many more people are doing this now where even couples are making embryos to give themselves more time, but that was very rare five years ago. And so I remember my doctor at the time saying, most people who are sitting in this chair, you know, across from her desk are coming in so stressed because they are either panicked that they are single, they are grieving that they are single, they are not sure even after this step of egg freezing what is coming next, or they've been struggling with infertility and they're afraid it's not going to work and there's so much grief and exhaustion around that. So she said, you are very rare that you're coming in empowered that you're being proactive with options, you're leaving your options open for the future, um, with a partner and with and for peace for the future rather than coming in 
with fear of the present or the future. So I just definitely acknowledged what a blessed position I was in. And I think that has impacted a lot of other things in my experience because I kept reminding myself in a lot of ways, so many people have this harder. Back to Amber, who said, I wish I'd educated myself more on egg freezing when I was younger. IVF has been around for, I think, 40 years. The Obamas used IVF. My colleague, Lauren Scruggs-Kennedy, is about 35. Her parents used IVF for her and her sister, and now she just used it for their son recently. I believe at the time, those were usually fresh transfers, meaning they weren't tested. That's why we used to implant a lot of or multiple embryos because you didn't know if they were chromosomally normal. You didn't know how many of them were going to take. You just made the embryo and I think pretty much put it right in. Then we got into frozen transfers later where you could test it. You could make them in advance and then you know, use one at a time. But embryos have more cells. They are sturdier. An egg is just one cell, I think. So what I was told six years ago by that first doctor was that egg freezing technology had just pretty recently at that time improved. And they had improved the technology that froze it and unfroze it. So more eggs were now surviving the thaw. So it was more effective. And I would imagine there had been people that were doing it probably if you had a lot of money and it, you know, maybe not the highest success rate, but why not try? But my gut is that for the average person, it just wasn't a high enough success rate for a predominantly, this would be single woman, right? To be doing egg freezing. So for a individual woman to have the income to do it because it's expensive. And if it wasn't that high of a success rate versus now the technology has started to improve. And my theory is that that was right around the time that we started getting a lot more honest, authentic, transparent on social media. I mean, was it around... 12-ish years ago that Instagram started, you know, let's say ballpark 10 years ago, Instagram starts were really about the, the pretty pictures, the perfection, the idealism. Then I feel like about halfway through that time, ballpark five-ish years ago, people started to get a little more raw and real and imperfect. We had Snapchat come around like six years ago where people were being funny and silly and all that. So I think the pairing of those two things together, Amber, just in the last five-ish years, I feel like you've started to have more women doing egg freezing because it was more likely to work and then talking about egg freezing. You've now had more startups come around that are helping women specifically around their fertility targeted to individual women rather than to couples. So please do not kick yourself as though you just weren't paying attention. It is becoming more common to consider and talk about. That's why it's on your radar now. And I personally choose the angle that I think if you are in your early 40s or younger, this is a great time to be alive in this area. And at 37, Amber, I would be so grateful that you aren't 47 right now and that you are now paying attention. Don't come from the angle of shame you weren't paying attention earlier understand, oh yeah, this has just become more common. It's on my radar. And how wonderful that I at least have the option to go and explore it. So for anyone who is considering going through the process, I just want to say, 
the retrieval itself was not that bad. And I feel like I'm saying that because I've had a couple friends since put it off, kind of be like, I don't know if now's the right time. I'm just thinking maybe I'll wait until this, wait until that. And I would say there's three factors to consider. The first is time. It is a lot of time, but it's only two weeks. So yes, you are having to go every other morning to the clinic before work, get your blood drawn, do an ultrasound. You've got timed injections, usually two times a day. Some of those have to be refrigerated, so you do have to be thinking about your schedule. You can't necessarily be on the go. I remember I was very stressed about taking mine at the right timing around the Taylor Swift concert (laughs) that I had tickets to in one of our rounds. Um, In New York City, when you have to go on the weekends, Jeremy and I would be so annoyed when my monitoring fell on the weekends because you have to take the local train to get there. We had to go way outside of our neighborhood. It was like an hour commute just to get there. It would be a packed waiting room on the weekends. It just felt like they never had enough people to do it. So it was like half our day on the weekends. It wasn't a small thing, but I can't imagine you will regret giving the time for those two weeks because now it's just done. So if the time is the thing on your mind, just do it. The second factor is physical. For me, I don't get major side effects from things. So take that in, you know, the grain of salt as I'm saying it, but it was fine for me. Like I don't get PMS, I don't get bad cramps. One of my best friends can tell if a vitamin she took that day makes her feel different. I certainly wish I could because then I would know what supplements were worth my time. But for me, I didn't feel particularly bloated, heavy. I didn't feel like I gained weight, you know, the day after the or the day of the retrieval. You wake up from the anesthesia, that part, totally fine. You're asleep, you don't feel anything. Just some light cramping, you go home, you take a nap. Like really for me, the physical part was fine. The most intense element of that was just giving yourself the shots in the very beginning as the hardest part. Laura had asked, what do you wish you had known or done to make it less stressful? And Andrea asked, as a medical provider, what could be done to be even more supportive in this time? For me, it's just around those first shots, Laura, was really the most stressful thing. And I think just knowing that was stressful for other people in and of itself would help that it just, you feel like, I must be doing something wrong. But no, it's a wild thing. They send you home with like 150 syringes to stick into yourself and barely anybody gives you training. It really feels like you should be getting some more guidance in this area. It's kind of wild. I had a friend go through it a couple years ago. And I remember her FaceTiming Jeremy and I the first night at like 10 o'clock at night. She's like, do you remember how this one works? Like, I can't figure out what I'm doing wrong. They'll send you, they'll go over it with you in the office, but it feels very different when you're actually doing it yourself. Additionally, all the syringes and little elements like that are different. So what they're using in the office may not be what gets delivered to your home. The YouTube video that they send you to watch the instructions may not be the same thing. So for our friend, there was like some little clear cap on the syringe that she had to take off, but that wasn't in the YouTube video. It wasn't there when you know the nurse had walked them through. So I would recommend that you ask. I would recommend fertility clinics do this. And if yours doesn't offer it up, I would would ask if it is possible to go in and do the your first injections with a nurse. Do it yourself so that you've gotten past that hurdle, but take off the fear that I'm going to do this wrong and just... You know, when you're stressed, your your mind just isn't thinking as clearly, and you don't want to make do do a mistake. You know, it's so much money, and 
again, not to create fear, but it does happen that you can do it wrong. We have friends that did IVF and the last thing you have to do is something called a trigger shot. And he did it wrong. Basically, he gave her like an air shot. He didn't properly fill the syringe. So even though he plunged it all the way in, nothing came out. That means the eggs aren't released and they actually did lose everything from that round. So again, not to instill fear, but also to say to yourself, I'm not being crazy that I really want to make sure that I get this right. And it just goes against every human instinct to jab something into yourself or your partner or your sister or your roommate or your best friend, whoever it is. Like It's really just the mental hurdle that you have to get over. The injection itself for egg freezing is not painful. It's a tiny needle. Like It's really not that big of a deal. And I say this as someone who my whole entire life has hated shots, injections, blood draws so much. I cry every single time. My stomach is a knot on the way to the place. So I can tell you, if you don't like needles and shots and blood draws and you are that girl, like, same sister, and I I was fine. I actually, weirdly, am grateful that I went through that experience because I'm really fine with it now. It really got me over this thing that for decades, since I was a little kid, had been this huge thing for me. And now I'm like, eh, whatever. Like, I've done it so many times. It's no big deal. Even our surrogate, who is in the medical field, so she is used to giving injections to other people and used to needles and her training, all of that. She was an egg donor before uh, she was a surrogate. So we are the second family that she has helped create, which is just says so much about her heart. Um, but she said, yeah, the first time I did them, it took like 10 minutes for me to work up the nerve to do it. And then after that, I was fine. It really was just that mental part. But some people absolutely do have more side effects. I am not discounting that. You just now also have me as an example that that isn't necessarily the case. And when I was speaking to my doctor and telling her some of this, Initially, I said, you know, I had this one friend that said she felt like her hair was falling out. And I watched this YouTube video of this girl. It was like, I was so emotional. I couldn't stop weeping over the weeks. And she said, I believe that is mental and not physical. As noted earlier, most women in this situation, it is so mentally challenging, whether because you are single or you're experiencing infertility, I believe those are psychosomatic and it's our thoughts that are creating those, not actually the effects of the hormones. So passing that on from my doctor. But the third element is the emotional. And even in my ideal position, you're tracking the follicle count daily. You're wondering, is this going to work? Are we going to have kids? What if this doesn't work? It's so expensive. I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to make a mistake. Is this going to be worth it? But I would also say it's one of those things that if you're emotional about it in the process, if you're feeling fear, anxiety, grief, you're already emotional about it, right? Like it's weighing on you. It's on your mind. That's why you got to this scenario in the first place. And I'm sure someone who's listening who's never going to do IVF, this is a word for you as well to just get the scan or the procedure, make the appointment, have the conversation, because the longer you put it off, the more you sit with the not knowing. So yes, it's emotional, but it's already emotional. Just be present in the emotion and process it, and you are going to feel better afterwards. Speaking of emotion, um, 
When I went in to do this first egg retrieval, so this is a year after my first consultation, my follicle count wasn't as high. But it's also all guesses and averages. I mean, in hindsight, maybe it should have been obvious that we weren't going to have the success we expected. And we were nervous. I mean, you're going in every other day to get checked. It's a constant follicle watch to see if they're growing, if anything new is growing, if anything has stopped growing. Maybe in hindsight, we should have lowered our expectations, but you just don't know what you don't know. And I think we've both said a lot of times in sharing this story with with people socially in our lives that like you kind of feel silly going back and looking at it and thinking we really, if you feel naive, that we really thought we were just going to do one round. And that was just going to be it. And that was just going to be easy. Like that's all the stress and pressure and expectation that we had on it at the moment. But you you go from the amount of follicles that you you have into less of those actually become eggs and are retrieved on the day and then less of those survive and then less get to the next stage and the next stage. And so I think it's about two weeks after you do your egg retrieval that you are waiting for the final answer and you're getting updates every few days. And usually your numbers keep going down and down and down. Like there's such attrition. Meanwhile, We were insane at the time. We were planning two weddings, um, one of which was a surprise elopement, both of which were international. Um, I do not recommend that anyone does this, but again, you don't know what you don't know. So we were totally crazy. And in August, within 24 hours, my wedding planner quit. I found out the musicians they'd booked wouldn't learn new music and we wanted worship music played. So I had to find new musicians. The cake they'd booked was like $500. And I was like, this is a cake for eight people. How is this so expensive? Like I've got to find a new cake. But there was just all these things that like I thought that the planner had done, she hadn't done or done correctly. And then she quit. We're just weeks away from the wedding, which again is a surprise. We're surprising six friends, flying them internationally on this thing. And we get the call that we only have one embryo. And honestly, I don't, like, I didn't see it coming. I don't know if it's that, like, the call before that we had three and I just didn't think it was going to drop that much, but it just, or was it just that we were so busy? I don't know. Were we still just naive? We just didn't see it coming. And it just felt so so devastating and so scary. I put a photo in my announcement reels, I'll add it in the description, where my face is so incredibly broken out. Like my forehead, my cheeks, my chin, all the way down my neck, onto my chest was just like pimples and redness. It was almost like I had a whole rash. Like I have never been so stressed in my life as I was those weeks. My body was like revolting. And that it just felt so terrifying. Like, is this not going to work? Did we just find out that we're not going to be able to have a baby? Are we too late? Can we not have kids biologically? And Leah asked, how have you dealt with mourning the loss of not having children the, quote, conventional way, for lack of a better phrase? I know I mentioned before, Leah, that I felt so much more grateful 
than I ever felt loss. Like I was just always aware, I was so grateful I could afford to do even one round of IVF when so many of my friends couldn't. I was grateful that I'd built up the business I had at the time, that I'd saved that money. I was so proud that as a single woman, I had saved up that money. Um, But even there, I acknowledge like my privilege in my business. I acknowledge just the natural gifts that I was given and not everyone who works as hard, you know, has as much success that there's like, you know, like luck and blessing in that as well. I was grateful that I was proactive and that I had a financial planner and that she was a woman and that she too was in a stage where she was thinking about this, which is why she knew to pass this on. I mean, if she already had three children or was in her 50s, maybe this would have been a hard radar. I was so grateful I'd met Jeremy in that same season. So I'll talk about the next stage of surrogacy later, which was many years down the road. But at that point for me, it wasn't oh, I wish I could get pregnant unassisted. It was just, I'm so grateful I even have a chance and that I've been proactive about this and maybe it's not too late. And that said, Nancy asked, how did this timing affect your relationship if it did? As I said earlier, we were pretty much ride or die from date one, but I will also say I had felt that before and then the relationship would die after a couple of months. So I I always like to qualify that because I've had those, I'd I'd had the moment multiple times in my life where I was like, this is the one. And then it turned out not to be. But at this point, again, we'd set a wedding date a year in. It was another six months before we actually did the Uh, egg retrieval, embryo freezing. So it didn't feel pressured or rushed. But Jeremy was really fine either way, like kids or not, stopping after one round or continuing to go on. And for all the years of this, you know, process, all the decisions around surrogacy, et cetera, it's been great to have so much support in one way of like, whatever you decide, I'm behind you. But it's also so much pressure when it's just you, like every decision really was just me. And personally, that made me turn to God a lot more. Um, It's just such a life altering decision. You know, do do you spend more money to do another round or, you know, whatever the decision is in front of you? I cried a lot about the pressure and the loneliness I felt in having to make them. And I didn't have any friends on this journey at any point. Like I had, you know, that one friend that was doing egg freezing while single due to cancer genes. But, and many years later, I had a friend who was, did egg freezing while single. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of people, unfortunately, who were going through fertility, infertility, or miscarriages. but no one with my story, no one doing the embryo rounds years in advance of actually wanting to use them. So wondering how many is enough? How how many will I not regret later? No one who was then, you know, didn't have a lot of embryos and what do you want to do from there? Anyone who's considering surrogacy. So it was a very lonely journey of wishing that I had someone that I could relate to. And I didn't expect that going in. Um, And I think that's something that I'm really trying to honor for myself because I think I've seen so many other stories of the traumatic parts publicly or in my life. Things like miscarriage and infertility and um, that are so hard. 
but I haven't ever heard anybody talk about the loneliness part. And so I think because you hear these other hard parts more often, you're kind of like, oh, well, those sound really hard. And, and so my heart probably wasn't as hard as theirs because no one else is saying it. And I still think I'm having to really honor for myself that it, it was traumatic. It has been traumatic having to go through all of these decisions alone. Um, again, even though I have a partner, but because he truly authentically felt like he really was okay either way, or ultimately it was my body and I had to decide, it was more from an honoring place that he was like, this is up to you. And I just, I, I wish oftentimes that I had like somebody to tell me what to do. Um, but I hear people talking about being angry with their bodies and I just never was. I don't know why, but that just wasn't my experience. You know, most people, again, it's changing a little bit right now, but most people doing embryo creation are, are doing it to use right now. And that's a very different scenario if you're making them to then right away see if you can get pregnant. And because I wasn't, that felt like, I just felt like the, the odd bird out in so many elements. Um, but I think the loneliness, the pressure of the decisions, because it's so much money, it's so much time and energy, it's so much emotional hope. Like what if you regret spending the money because you get no more embryos out of it? and you're just throwing $20,000 and $20,000 and you have nothing to show for it. Like, are you gonna regret and be like, oh my gosh, that was the wrong decision? Or what if you regret not spending the money because the one embryo doesn't work out and then you're like, oh my gosh, why Why did I not, it's just money, why did I not, why would I not have paid more to like try to give us a better chance? You know, so in a lot of ways, my story is quote better than a lot of people's. I have not had a miscarriage. I haven't tried for years, you know, not falling pregnant and being so ready. I think that's another part. I wasn't in the place where I was like, I am so yearning to be a mom right now with every cell of my being. And that's where so many of my friends have been at. But I also think because of that, I've downplayed over the years, the traumatic elements to myself downplayed that were still present. And again, I, I look back at that photo and it's clear on my face, like this, this wasn't okay. Um, you know, and you're thinking that you're giving yourself time. We're just going to do this one round and we're going to give ourselves time. It's going to be this huge, like exhalation of like, look how proactive we were. This is great. We're in a great position. And then getting that call that you only have one embryo and realizing maybe it's already too late. Like, Maybe we won't have kids and not because it was our choice. And maybe the option of giving ourselves more time isn't an option. Like after all these years of being on the fence and all this energy I've invested trying to decide whether I want to have kids, what if it was never even a choice? Like that suddenly feels so terrifying. And it's so confusing when you don't feel old. You don't feel behind in life. You don't feel like a late bloomer, but biologically, you are. And so many women are in this position. That's a whole other podcast. But like some definitions say that middle age starts at 35. And I feel like you're like, isn't it like 50? Like if we live to like our late 90s and 50, kind of the midway point in there. But it's a very confusing window, I feel like, as you like start to get to 35, from like 35 to 45. And Maybe that's just because that's where I see a lot of friends are. It's like when you're in that age range and you are single or you are just getting married, you don't have kids yet, you still have so many career goals, so many, you want to do travel. There's like so much more life that you want to live. And 
we talk in What Makes Women Feel Beautiful about how much society emphasizes youth in women, and so much of that is just patriarchy, which just means men's preferences, etc. And that is a story that we can rewire. But then we also have this one reality that as women, we actually can't control, work harder at, do any better. There is a ceiling. We have a limitation that we lose eggs as we age. And it's not something in culture we can advocate to pass a bill around or a story we can mentally challenge. It's just a limitation of being a female gender. And it is kind of infuriating. (laughs) And I really have been on this journey with the Kardashians. They're the only reality show that I watch. And three of them, the oldest three, have all gone through egg freezing, IVF, and or surrogacy in their 30s or 40s. And it's interesting to be reminded that you can have all the money and power in the world. And that doesn't mean you can control your fertility or make it easy. So Courtney's first round, I think Courtney's the oldest maybe, Courtney's first round of egg retrieval was when she was single and it aired on television just after we had finished ours. And she hated the way the hormones made her feel. When I was saying earlier, people have different physical reactions, whether that is mental or physical, I don't know. But she was so negative about the whole experience being awful. She hated it. In her first round, she got the same amount of eggs that we had. And when she's sharing this in her talking to the camera or with a friend, she said, I think that's enough. And I remember watching in our old apartment and Jeremy was in the room and he'd heard her say it. And he said out loud, no, it's not. And it's because it's the same amount of eggs we had and it had only led to one embryo. And I think in our mind, it was like, okay, it also could have led to no embryos and you don't know that one is a guarantee. And so at the time I felt frustrated for her. I I was like, where, why is there not someone in her life that's telling her it's, it's not enough. If you're wanting to do this for peace of mind, you do need to do this more times. And then a handful of years went by. She started trying again. She had now met someone or, or gotten married to her husband, Travis, and uh, none of her eggs survived the thaw. And she actually said on the show, I, like, I wish someone had told me, no one tells you that it's not a guarantee. And um, I, I, it's just one of those things, again, you would think she has all the resources, right? She has all the wisdom. She has all the time and attention. Like, I just think there's someone listening that looks back and is like, oh, I was so dumb to not know that. How was I so stupid? And you might think if I'd had a better doctor, if I had more, if I wasn't so stressed at work or whatever, and here's this woman who felt like she wasn't given that information, I, because I had a partner and was blessed to get to the next step, felt like I had more information just from my lived experience, even though she has so much more privilege than me. So I see her now going through this many years older with her husband. It's not working. And I just felt so sad for her. And mind you, I I don't have some like personal connection to Kourtney Kardashian. Like I don't follow them on Instagram or anything. I watch the show. That's about it. I find them entertaining. But I just, I think because our timing was so similar, I felt so sad for her. I still was feeling like, why didn't you do more rounds before? I wish you'd had someone in your life that had told you to do more rounds. 
And she again hated the experience of doing IVF, decided to stop doing it, trust God. She is a person of faith as well, believed that if it was going to happen, it was going to happen. And when a couple of, was it weeks ago, a couple of months ago maybe, I saw somewhere that she had gotten pregnant naturally in, I think, her early 40s. I think she's 42 or 43. I started crying for this woman that I don't know. I texted Lucky, my doctor and friend, in all caps. We like always text because they so often are talking about fertility stuff on the show. And I'm frequently texting her like, here's another idea for reels of something wacky that Courtney said or whatever. I text her like in all caps, like, oh my gosh, like she's actually pregnant. And I just thought, she listened to her gut. And, you know, even though it was coming from a place of, of love, if you can say love for a stranger you have no relationship with, but even though it was coming from a positive place, it was coming from a place of empathy and compassion of someone else that had gone through a similar shared experience. I was wrong for thinking at the time that she made the wrong call. In a minute about having to come to that definition of enough for myself, but in that moment, Her gut said seven was enough, that one round was enough. And then many years later, she trusted her gut to stop IVF and she got pregnant naturally in her early 40s. And I just think something we can all grow in as humans in so many areas and topics is honoring how hard it is to be alive, (laughs) to make choices, how personal, unique, complex they are, and respect any other human, unless they are doing something to harm someone else. But if it's just about their body, career, relationship, family, finances, wish them all the peace and joy on this bizarre journey of life we are all trying to navigate, whether we're a millionaire and famous or a kindergarten teacher. And fertility is sort of an equalizer in that. All the money in the world doesn't mean you can control when and whether God brings life. And I think that's something that gets missed in a lot of the celebrity examples that we hear, and those are the most public ones we hear, that there is, because we see them having privilege in all these other areas, we associate the privilege here, when in so many cases, it actually is a humble reminder that it doesn't matter if you have all of that. It, does, it doesn't mean as a woman that your body can conceive or your body can carry. And as women today in your 30s and 40s, well, I said before, we are so blessed with the technology that we have right now, even though many can't afford it. So it does not mean that we all get this gift. But even if you can, it doesn't mean that it'll work. And Even if it does work, meanwhile, we are so blessed with more options and opportunities in our career and where we want to live in the world if we want to move. But we also simultaneously have a disappearing middle class and childcare in America is insanely expensive. The stakes for what a good enough mother is have skyrocketed in the last couple of decades. So to round out Nancy's question of how did it affect your relationship? It's just been 100 times harder simply being a woman. And it feels like the hard parts are a lot of questions I still don't have answers to. Like, how can I have everything I want without being exhausted or financially insecure? And even though I have a very supportive partner, he often 
not at this point in the story, you know, chronologically, we're between embryo transfer or uh, egg retrievals one and two, not at this part of the story, but many years down the road has been like, I thought we already talked about this. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm still struggling. I'm still grappling. I'm still not fully at peace with my decision. So back to where we are in the timeline. We do one round of egg retrieval. We are devastated to get only one embryo. And then a few weeks later, we elope. We come back and we have this reveal party planned for our friends and family. And we're expecting this huge celebration of joy on top of the joy we just experienced at the elopement. We've been dreaming about this moment for a year. And there's a family issue that we just absolutely do not see coming. And there is no celebration moment of rest. There is just more exhaustion and disappointment and heaviness and the next day, I can't get out of bed. Um, Jeremy doesn't go to work. So he's like, I don't think I should leave you home alone. This is back when he used to go to the office pre-pandemic. Um, he makes appointments for me at a psychologist and a psychiatrist. I come home with two medications uh, for the first time in my life, like Lexapro and Xanax. It's just a pretty dark time. And we move on to, we decide to do a second round of egg freezing and you know, I tr- I try in general, always in in any story that I'm I'm sharing, any conversation that I'm having with our community, not to talk about numbers, clothing size, weight, age, follicles, egg count, embryos. I just think in general, our culture is so obsessed with numbers. Like, have you ever noticed when you're reading an article on a celebrity website or whatever, they're always noting the person's age? And you're like, why was that relevant? Why is that really relevant to the fact that her movie's opening this weekend? Why do we need to know that she's 37? Like, how is that, how is that relevant to the conversation? But we love these numbers. And yet, if our numbers are better than someone else, if we have more money than someone else, if we are younger than someone else, if we got more eggs than someone else, then we feel better. And if our numbers are worse, then we feel worse. And if you start paying attention to stories, you're just always gonna find a bunch of people who are better and a bunch of people who are worse. So it's kind of just emotional Russian roulette that you're going in willy-nilly hoping that these numbers are gonna make you feel better, but they also could make you feel worse and, you know, vice versa. I mean, I just... I remember sitting in bed one night just like crying because I was watching stories of someone that I love following on Instagram and she had done one round um, for embryo freezing with her partner. She's my age uh, or or was the age I did it at the time. And um, she got more embryos in one round than I ever got. And you just have that like, like, why? Why couldn't I have her story like and she already has a kid that doesn't seem fair right like and she has more money than me to do more rounds that doesn't seem fair like just the we know that life isn't fair but that's where your mind goes that you're just like why is it harder for me than it is for other people and then you can look as I said I have a lot at other stories and see that other people have it harder than you so I can't guarantee that I will never share numbers. It's my story to tell. I'm not giving trigger warnings around that, but I just always skip over numbers unless they are so relevant to the story. But in this case, I will tell you that in our second round, we got one egg. And you've just spent like almost $20,000. You've taken, I don't know, three, four, five shots every single day, gone and gotten blood work every other day. 
You're waking up early to get there before work. You're checking your email daily for results. You're like always leaving your phone on in case the fertility clinic calls. You're anxiously following the follicles. And I knew that I had less follicle count that second round than the last time, but not like so much less. So you're under the anesthesia. You're coming to in the you know, waiting room in your hospital bed, whatever, they bring you juice and crackers and then they come tell you your number or they write it on a post-it so that the woman, women on the other sides of the curtain all lined up next to you don't hear, you know, again, whether yours is more or less than hers, how people would feel. And I just, I cry every time I think of that moment because you just feel so terrified that maybe this isn't going to work. And it's not going to be your choice. Uh, and you're so exhausted from everything that you've put in for, quote, nothing to show for it. You know, and the sweet nurse was like, I've had a patient in here. She was like, I know, but I've had a patient here who just got one egg and that made it into an embryo and they have a baby now. And I was like, yeah, but I had this many eggs the first round and we only got one embryo. And again, this is why numbers in fertility stories is so hard because there's always an exception. There's always hope. And then there's also, in every average, people who have it way worse, who are below average, and that could be you too. They just never really make you feel better in my experience. It's like trying to grab onto water. It's never satisfying. So that one egg did not make it. Um, We now go into a third round of egg retrieval in October, November. I met my parents for Thanksgiving. I'm about to go outside and take photos with my niece and nephew on the last day before we all leave. And the fertility clinic calls to say that the last embryo from that round didn't make it. My sister rushes in kind of like, hey, are you ready? You know, because kids have short attention spans. She's like, hey, they're, they're set out there. I'm crying. She's like, oh my gosh, what happened? I tell her like the last embryo didn't make it. You know, we hug. I brush off the tears and go take photos with the kids. And at some point in here, I don't remember on which of the rounds it was, but you know, at some point I had to decide what my definition of enough was. How many times would we do this? And Jeremy again kept saying, he's fine to stop. He's fine to keep going. And I think I just had this idea from my very first meeting that three embryos was a 95% chance of live birth. And at the time, that's a phrase that they use, by the way, that's not my phrase, like a chance of live birth. And At the time, I'd felt peace with that before we struggled. Like when I just had that first appointment and I was like, oh, that feels good. So I think I just went back to that. And I was like three embryos or five rounds. I I don't know. I think just like $100,000 was a round number. And that I don't know. It just felt like a tipping point after that. And it's just so personal. Like at what number, if what we have doesn't work, down the road, would I not say to myself, I should have done one more round. And I just don't think there's any way to help anyone else get there to what their definition of enough was for them. Like, it's so personal. Again, it goes back to like, I just had to pray and come to just my peace that I was not going to go on a self-hatred tour for the rest of my life. If it didn't work and I wasn't going to shake, like, I just, I knew that, you know, it could be easy to get to that point for me if I didn't really think through it, that I could just become that bitter person that holds on to like, why didn't we do a sixth round? Why didn't we do a sixth round? Or why didn't we wait until we had four? Why didn't we wait until we had four? And I just had to decide for myself, 
for reasons I can't explain. Like, these are my numbers. And I just felt like God gave me a piece about that. And that if it didn't work and, you know, as I'm recording this for you too, it's so odd because I feel very far from that. That was so many years ago. And I feel so peaceful about the fact that it is going to work for us. But as I said at the top, we don't know if we're pregnant yet. You know, we just had our first embryo transfer. And so as I'm saying this, none of them could work. Like we could have no baby to show for it. And I would still say, even though right now I'm like, but maybe we could have gone for another one. Maybe we could have gotten a fourth. Like I'm not saying I'll never play that game with myself, but also that I do feel I have to go back to Hillary at that point. She was peaceful. And I have to, I have to trust that I have to trust my past self and know that, you know, my, my future self could second guess it, but I needed to like anchor in at that moment. You've got your past self to come back to, to be like, we thought about this. We journaled about this. We prayed about this. We cried about this. Like this was our decision. We've got to, I've got to trust my past self that she made the right call for, you know, what God had for us. So we have two more rounds and our fourth round is in early 2019 before our wedding, which was early February. And meanwhile, in January, there are more family issues that we just absolutely didn't see coming at all. And we are just on our last nerve. We've been wedding planning for a year and we have never been less happy as a couple than in that season because of all that stress. It just was like every free moment, this is what we were working on. We were so burned out. We were so ready to just get to the finish line and be able to celebrate. Then also we're in round four, this other thing that feels like, you know, we're constantly chasing and working towards the finish line. Meanwhile, I'm trying to run my business, which is always exhausting, even if I don't have these other personal projects. And then also to have family issues. It was just such a heavy season. And I share that because if you were following me in that time and you saw our gorgeous elopement and gorgeous wedding, and they were, they were magical. I made these beautiful moments and days and Jeremy and I talk about the memories from it all the time, but they were also both surrounded by some of the worst times on multiple fronts. And I want to share that because I think especially with how often in fertility there is comparison and jealousy, and I've been there too, where you're like, why can't my story be as easy as hers? Why don't I have what she has? That we just never know all that someone is carrying. And I've had the experience multiple times where there's someone that I was watching thinking, oh, this thing is easier for her. And then down the road, she shares part of their story, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't have traded places with her because you got to take the whole package deal in life, right? Everybody has high highs and low lows. And I now try to play that game with myself sometimes. I've shared this on the podcast before that if I'm really feeling jealous of someone, I will say maybe they are going through fill in the blank thing. And it just reminds me to have compassion for them, have, you know, that, that they too are a human walking through human things. It can make it easier to feel happier for someone else, more grateful for what you have. And, you know, someone, again, just because I know how sensitive fertility is for so many people. And I think back to when my brother-in-law was in his accident in March, someone criticized me for something. I don't remember what, but they sent me some like mean or nitpicky at least DM. And 
I remember sharing it and just being like, you just don't know what people are going through. We just had this horrible news the night before that, you know, this 26-year-old guy is paralyzed from the neck down. Like, it just was so traumatic. And the person then apologized and was like, if I'd known what you were going through, I wouldn't have brought that up now. And I just thought, but I think that's the thing that I try to challenge in myself. This is even if I'm like, why is that friend not texting me back and I'm frustrated or whatever? I just try more and more as I observe, and I'm even sharing this aloud for myself, as I reflect on where I was and how much was going on that other people didn't know. And I say, okay, Hillary, then that is true for other people. So how can you always say, maybe there's something harder that's happening that I don't realize. And if I did, I'd be like, you know what? I just don't need to bring this drama. I just don't need to make this comment. I just don't need to engage this. If I always treat someone as though that's happening, then I am likely to always be a safe and supportive person. And Emma submitted the question, and a lot of you asked, how can we support someone going through this? And while I didn't feel unsupported at this stage, I will share later how I could have been more supported in the surrogacy stage, but as a broad answer, The kinder we are, even when we don't know anything hard is happening, the better people are supported across the board. And a lot of the hardest things are the things that people are not sharing. So I think that be kind for everyone's fighting a hard battle adage is one that every time I come back to, I realize I could be living out more. So in this fourth round now, our numbers are better than my last two rounds. From the first appointment, I have more follicles. And my doctor is like, what did you do? Did you get more sun? Did you go on vacation? Have you had less stress? Did you get acupuncture? And I was like, no, on all accounts. Like, it's winter. I'm in New York. I'm totally stressed. You didn't say anything about acupuncture. I would have done it if you'd mentioned that. But like, it's just proof that they don't know. They wish they did. And they're looking for anecdotal evidence amongst their patients that she's like, I wish I could explain why is your fourth round better than your second or your third? We didn't change any medications, you know, whatever, like what could be the difference? And I don't, again, want to give false hope. I'm just sharing my experience that it really can change month to month. That like, just because you had, you know, one egg out of it the first time doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, multiple follicles on another round that leads to more eggs, that leads to, you know, um, more embryos. So from that round, we have another embryo that makes it. So we're up to two embryos. And then we have another that is inconclusive. And we have to wait weeks. During this point, we get married, we go on honeymoon, and I um, will also link to a carousel post that I put on Instagram where I have um, like the notes that I took while I was on hold waiting for that, uh, waiting to find out if that last one worked. And I'm just writing like, I, I trust you. I trust you and just being like, I trust you, God, with, you know, whatever it is. Um, And then I also have a screenshot of Jeremy's face when I FaceTimed him from my office to tell him. And he's just like so shocked because to be on the fourth round, have numbers better than the second or third rounds where we're like, this is amazing, but we don't know what changed. They're similar to the first round where we only got one embryo and to get two, like we were just ecstatic And again, it's why the numbers and the percentages are just such a mind fork in this experience because you you just don't know. So 
Now that that part of the journey is done, we have three embryos and I said that I would stop there. And we at this point just feel so celebratory because that last round went so much better than we were expecting. So it feels like we're ending on a high note. We're feeling so grateful. We are thrilled to be done wedding planning. And now we're also done with IVF. We move into a new apartment. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that we got like this insane apartment that we got. Like there's just such freedom and relief. And we just kind of then end up in this long open season of like, okay, so now what's next? You know, now back to the question at the top, like, are we sure we want kids and what would that look like? And what's that timing and all of that. But it was just kind of such a blur that year with so much going on that I feel like, and a lot of people have talked about this in their fertility stories that like, sometimes you just need a pause because it's so constant and so intense. So I'll pause here to answer questions like Sarah, who asked, I don't mean to be rude at all, but was adoption ever a consideration? Like, how did you choose egg retrieval and surrogacy versus looking into the adoption process, which I understand is also complex and complicated, so it's not suggesting it's easier or better, just wondering. So a few things here um, for Sarah and for others who submitted questions like this. So number one. From what I have observed over the years, both adoptive parents and adults who were adopted as children will tell you that the two should not necessarily be thought of as interchangeable. That adoption is really something you feel called to and led to, and not everyone does. It's not the same thing as feeling called to or led to being a parent. It is a different desire of your heart, and that again, according to adoptive parents and adults who were adopted children, it does a disservice to adopted children to act like ah, a, a child is a child any way you go about it. Some people have that mindset, but if you don't have that mindset, then it can not be the, the healthiest way to proceed. Number two, every person who wants it should have the option and support to explore biological children. It's a very normal human experience to desire something that's your DNA. And it's the most common experience. It's the main narrative we see from the time that we are little kids. So while I love how delicately and lovingly Sarah asked this, and it's why I used her version of the question, which is no shade to anyone else who submitted. I just really appreciated Sarah's extra sensitivity. I want any woman considering egg or embryo freezing to hear me. If you're thinking about it, then that's because the story on your heart is a biological child. And that is a beautiful life dream. And you don't have to be able to articulate why you do not want to adopt. Maybe you do, or maybe you will, in order to say you also have an innate desire to carry a baby, to be pregnant, or to have your DNA or your partner's DNA. Third, Number three, there are a lot of outdated misconceptions about adoption. I will link a handful of articles from center-leaning publications in the description to give sources for what I'm saying. Number one, international adoptions almost never happen now for healthy infants. They've decreased almost 90% in the last 20 years. So if you're thinking about families in your life that have children, 
were they in the last couple of years in this scenario, or was this a story from your childhood growing up? They were maybe 20, 30 years ago. If you're called to a special needs child or an older child, there are some, but the majority of countries no longer allow Americans to adopt their babies and work on keeping them in the country. And while I am not a nationalist, I believe we're all God's children, so humans can be loved and thrive all over the world. I also deeply honor that it can be beautiful to grow up in and amongst the people of your lineage. Number two, in the U.S., we have a lot of children in the foster care system if you're open to adopting older children. But it's estimated there are one to two million parents waiting for an adopted baby. Teen pregnancy rates are down when women are forced into birth due to lack of reproductive rights and access to abortions. They're more likely to keep the baby. So we're just hopefully supporting those babies with our tax dollars through programs to support low-income families, but we're not forcing these births so we can have more adoptions. The, the data shows that is not what happens, even as messed up as that in and of itself would be, but if you're looking for that as a silver lining, it's not there. The data shows we are just bringing more children into poverty. And again, the sources in the description for this are there. This is not a political opinion. This is just based on the data. So number three, it is expensive. And with both the international and national realities, it can be long, heartbreaking, and you can never get a baby in the end. So in the years of making this decision, I heard and watched so many of those stories. Rachel Hollis has extensively shared their story of waiting so many years, having so many heartbreaks while hoping to adopt, wanting to give up, wanting to throw in the towel. My friend Jasmine Starr waited four years. She and her husband JD are high school sweethearts. They come from huge, amazing families. They seem like the dream parents that anyone would pick. So even if... I had been in the more common scenario of experiencing infertility and making more of a IVF or adoption decision, I would not have wanted to sign up for a potential four-year wait that might end up with nothing, along with one to two million other couples that are waiting. That wouldn't have felt proactive to me, like I was doing everything I could if I wanted a family. Now, again, this is for me. But I think we have that narrative from decades ago that there are all these babies out there waiting for a home, and it's just not true. Now, it also happens. I had friends who just adopted in the last year. They were matched so fast. You know, they were on the tiny percentage where it just was like, oh my gosh, we can't believe how happy, how quickly this is happening. We're so thrilled about it. But you have no idea if that will be your story. So unless that's what you feel called to, why would you not say, I actually think I have more control in moving forward with IVF? And because they're both expensive, couples often can't put their finances in both. So you've, you are usually deciding one or the other from the start. And you don't know until you start fertility treatments if it's going to be expensive for you. You know, in my case, it was one round of egg freezing. For some, it's an IUI, uh, interuterine insemination, I think. It's like a lighter, earlier procedure if, if a couple struggling with infertility. Um, it's getting a scan of your uterus for issues, et cetera. So if adoption isn't the first dream on your heart, you are usually already on the journey. You've already been 
just trying to conceive organically, why would you not take the next step of that that costs $500 to, I don't know, get a sperm analysis or have a consult or 5,000 to move on to IUI? I don't know these numbers. I haven't been through these roads. I'm just guessing. And go right for the twenty dollars to $50,000 adoption when it could be faster, cheaper, and more guaranteed to have your own biological child. So when people ask this, I think they just aren't aware of all the steps and how no one knows how many steps their story is going to be. You could just be one step, one $500 appointment and nine months away or a lot more. So unless you're feeling called to adoption from the beginning before infertility ever even occurred to you as part of your story, you aren't starting both at step one. And even if you are, adoption isn't the faster, cheaper, or more guaranteed uh, option at all. So in my case, when single and thinking about egg freezing, I had zero call on my heart to adopt. I didn't even know if I wanted kids, let alone to be a single adoptive mom. Like I had zero reason to think that I had low odds and that this wouldn't just be like, yeah, let's take this one step. It'll be a great, you know, um, in insurance plan. Um, it didn't come up because I was really grappling with what I wanted. It was another woman saying, hey, by the way, I'm doing this and I've heard some friends do it and like it really made them happy. And you're like, oh, interesting. There was no question of, well, would I want to do that or adopt? You're like, I'm single. I don't even know if I want kids. Like, but then once, it's like if you give a mouse a cookie, once one egg retrieval leads to another, leads to another, suddenly you're $80,000 in down this path and you have created embryos. This is the path that you're on. And the number four is stories from my childhood. Now, this is not everyone's story. And I shared that at the top of the episode that so much of our stories are the stories we have seen and heard. And therefore, we're going to have different stories, fears, uh, things we have faith in, are afraid of, prioritize, are scared about, ways that we envision things working than other people because of our lived experience. So this isn't fact. This is my experience. My parents' best friends growing up couldn't conceive, so they adopted. And both of their children's biological mothers had addiction issues. And this is an incredible couple, and I saw the struggles they had as parents that were so above and beyond what my parents did. And I was so aware of that from a young age. And then we had other family friends that adopted from overseas, and the child heartbreakingly had experienced such abuse that after many years, she was still violent with the other children in the home and with the parents. And Heartbreakingly, after many years, she was rehomed. They felt that she could never attach. She could was never able to make a loving bond to either of the parents or the siblings. She would physically attack the mother. Now, are those all adoption stories? Absolutely not. But were they a formative part of my childhood? Yes. And as I've watched my friends adopt, it has often been from traumatic circumstances that the child was removed from the parent. Um, but that does not mean that they will not have absolutely healthy children who will completely thrive. It does not mean that that would be my story, but I also knew stories. <clears throat> 
Now, are those all adoption stories? Absolutely not. There are incredible adoption stories out there and so many people that are grateful they were adopted and et cetera, but they were a formative part of my childhood. And I wanna acknowledge that because I don't think it's something that gets talked about often in this conversation when people say to anyone who's experiencing any challenge in IVF, oh, at least you can always adopt or why not just adopt? And I think if you don't have any experiences with it, whether from your childhood or watching people go through it in adulthood, I mean, even now, a lot of my friends who have adopted, it has come from traumatic experiences that are why the child was removed from the biological parent. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't have healthy children who absolutely go on to thrive. It's not to fear monger. It's not to assume the worst. It is absolutely not to make blanket statements. But it does acknowledge that unlike some of the things I said earlier that we sort of have these dated stories of adoption, those aren't necessarily dated stories. That adoption almost always comes, I mean, it always comes out of trauma, right? And there is a wide range of that, but it is something very specific to feel called to. And having said that, we actually do also hope to adopt. I have had a vision for many years now of us adopting a pair of older siblings as our child gets older. And this, again, goes back to seeing other stories in our lives. We've had two dear friends, uh, different sets of friends that became parents practically overnight to two siblings or three siblings that God placed on their path um, that were such beautiful Um, families and situations that we have looked at. We also have a little brother friend in our life. He is Freddie's buddy, as he's the only one who has ever cat-sit him. But um, our little brother's uh, dad was in jail growing up, and his mom died suddenly when he was 17. And he's been so involved with our church and finding family there of brothers and sisters. And when he turned 21 uh, last year and aged out of the foster care system, he was officially adopted by a couple who he's known at um, our church for years. Uh, Just last week, I heard another story. My friend Ashley's brother has become the guardian for a refugee student at his school, and he was on vacation with their whole family. So I think about a lot the fact that I believe our our older kids have already been born or are being born right now. I think about their mom. I pray for them. But I also feel really passionate about speaking up when I feel like I'm in the middle, especially on a topic that people rarely speak about from the middle. And like when I did the episode on whether or not we want to have kids, I felt like I could speak so passionately about it because I really, truly was on the fence. I hadn't fully picked a side, so I really could empathize with both sides. Women who've decided to be child-free by choice felt seen. Women who have decided to have children felt seen. Women who are child-free but don't know that it's really been a choice but are also trying to see what the, the positives of that might be you know, felt seen. So this topic to me of adoption when it comes to IVF or infertility in any element feels really important to me to speak on because I do believe that Jeremy and I will adopt 
And I don't believe anyone who desires a child biologically should be asked why they do. The majority of humans do, which is not to discount if you are listening and you're like, oh, I'm child-free by choice. But statistically, globally, the majority of humans both desire a child biologically and do go forth to have a child biologically. So those who've gone through IVF or infertility are only being asked because they are struggling to make that same desire happen. So to say, why don't you change your desire when the majority of people just get to have that desire? And the people who are struggling to get it are the only ones being asked, well, why why not just want something else? And they usually are asked that by people who already have what they want. I mean, most of the time, it's people who've had children biologically that are then saying, "Ah, why why don't you just pick something else? I just think it's messed up, to be totally frank, and I think it's offensive. And again, I've heard adoptive parents and adults who were adopted as children say the same, that one is not a solution for the other. They're two different dreams, and you either have them or you don't. Just as not everyone desires to have children, and I think that we should have such incredible respect for how personal that decision is, whether you have a desire for one or the other, or neither, or in Jeremy and I's case, both. That said, I shared Sarah's version of the question because she was so desiring to be respectful in asking it, and I'm not shaming Sarah or anyone else who asked it because, y'all, it's such a common question. I mean, I've watched these, these posts over the years, these YouTube comments, these, you know, I know this is the question that comes, but hopefully going forward, hearing me share this as your friend, and again, not for me, because I'm fine, but I'm in big sister protection mode over here for anyone who is going through IVF or infertility, that we shouldn't ask someone to defend why they have a dream. You have a dream to have a biological child. I love you. How can I support you in that? If you down the road are ready to expand or shift your dream and you want to inform me that you are now thinking about adoption and you tell me that, great. Now I can ask, how did this dream of adoption get on your heart? So how did the decision to do surrogacy get on our heart? I will share that next week as we continue this conversation in part two. Um, I will share why we turned down the first two surrogacy matches that we got. Um, You ask questions like, who gets to make decisions around termination if there is any issue? Uh, Why am I not carrying the pregnancy? Everything you asked or ask in the next week before I record that conversation. But until then, we will find out, um, as I said, about... 40, I'm sorry, 71 hours from now, um, as I'm recording this, if we are pregnant. So we will have that conversation over on Instagram in the meantime, before I see you back here for the next You're Welcome Wednesday. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is not keeping a secret. Oh, I will expand more on this next week why I decided now was the time to share. But it is so exhausting to have something that you aren't sharing. If you are in that stage of life, I feel you so deeply. You know, some of this 
was really relevant in my book podcast. I'll actually link that in the description as well in case you didn't hear that. But being legally silenced for a year when something deeply traumatic was happening and people kept asking about it and I couldn't say anything, there was such a weight to that. And I think that paired with getting closer on our fertility journey just felt like, oh my gosh, all the huge things in my life I'm not talking about. And there was just so much about myself, my life that I wasn't sharing. And it just gets exhausting. I really want to honor that if you are not sharing right now that you are on the brink of a breakup or a divorce or you're miserable in your job or your child's gotten a diagnosis that you don't want to share yet or someone in your family has a diagnosis that they don't want you to share, like whatever it is, again, I'll expand on this more next week because it is very scary and vulnerable often to share these things. And that's why we are not sharing them or why someone in our life has asked us not to share them. But it is also such a relief when we do because it is so exhausting not to be fully authentic, to watch your words, to only tell part of the story. So we told our families in person last week uh, and told our friends over uh, over text or in person, and then we posted on Instagram. So pretty much everything is out there now, or almost, and it feels like such a weight has been lifted, which now that I say that, maybe that's part of the reason that I'm feeling peace in the two-week wait. I didn't think about that as I was journaling this morning, but maybe it's like there's such a release of, oh my gosh, thank goodness we're finally talking about it that instead of just focusing on the buildup, maybe I would be having a harder time if I hadn't chosen to share now. I'll have to journal on that more tomorrow morning. But I am a little nervous about next week's episode because I've had years to read what people say about surrogacy, and it's pretty awful and disgusting when you realize that families who um, have made that choice, uh, whether to be a gestational carrier or to partner with one, are having to read and hear that, even if it's about a celebrity, if it's about an influencer or whatever. But I've also had a lot of years to come to peace with that. And for the families who've used surrogacy or will in the future that you know are going to be your friends two years, five years from now, I want to share far and wide to have more people understand this unique, wild, incredible experience of two families partnering together to bring life. So I will see you back here to continue this conversation next week with Grace and Gumption. You're welcome in advance. Till next Wednesday.